turn to the next moment in Jesus' life. This is, of all the stories in the Bible of his ministry, this is my favorite. There's so many here, and each one of them teach something unique and powerful, but I love this passage. It's interesting that when you look at some of the manuscripts, that this passage is not there. And so it, you kind of ask yourself, why would this there be such persistence that this one be included when in many manuscripts, this passage starting in about chapter 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse 11, in many manuscripts, it's not there. And so it's like, why not? The number one reason is why it is left out is because it almost appears that Jesus is promoting or condoning adultery. And I hope that we don't get confused or we walk away believing anything of that kind of nonsense. The, the message here is very powerful. This is about the woman that was caught in adultery. And in my office, I use this often. I use this story because I want people to understand not what necessarily was just going on with the woman who was caught in adultery, but what, but what was going on with those who came and who, who were accusing her. So the story is very rich and very powerful in many ways. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Jesus went up unto the Mount of Olives. And I'm going to stop there just briefly because this phrase actually probably belonged at the end of chapter 7. Because it talks about the fact that in the end of chapter 7, that those whom Jesus had been teaching all went to their homes. They all went to the places where their families were. And it says that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Again, teaching us and letting us know that he didn't have those things that many people had. He didn't have a home that he went to. He went to the place of retreat, which was the Mount of Olives. But he didn't go there because it was a warm bed. He didn't go there because it was a hot meal. He went there because that's where he had to go. Verse 2, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman, taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he had heard them not. So I'm going to stop there for just a second. The Pharisees, as it is well pointed out here, did this for one reason. They didn't care anything about this woman. They didn't care anything about her issues, her needs, her situation, anything about what she faced. And it does seem kind of strange that the scribes and the Pharisees here represent what religion can often bring, especially religion that has become formal and has a spirit about it. It's the spirit of religion, because this is what will happen. When the spirit of religion is very predominant, the people become second to the rule. The people become second to the law or following the traditions. The people always find a place somewhere down the list. I think I shared this with y'all before, but I remember I went into a church and I was supply preaching and they were dealing with an issue. And it was such a strange issue because I was like, I'll give you the money and remove this issue from your life forever. But the question was, we have a family that's been going here and their mom passed away. Can we send flowers or not? Because the bylaws said that you could only send flowers to a church member and the church would pay for it. This lady wasn't a church member, it was the mom of a church member. And so the great debate was, can we send flowers to this 
service because this woman's not officially a church member. Her kids are. And that was a great issue. They chose not to because the bylaws were more important than the family or the woman herself. That's not unusual. I wish I could tell you that it was, but that's not unusual because the guidelines or the laws often are very dominant over the people that you're really loving and should care about. And again, I wish that was more unusual than it was, but that's exactly what's going on here. They didn't care anything about her, and they're violating so many of their own laws. Within the Hebrew law, if the woman was going to be stoned, the one who brought the accusation had to be the one who would come and start it. Not just anybody. It's one of the reasons why Jesus' point was so poignant that we're going to read about in just a minute, because he said, you know, let he who is without sin come throw the first stone at her. The first stone was supposed to be thrown by her accuser. It was supposed to be thrown by the one who had actually witnessed what was going on. Now, in Roman law, a capital punishment case had to be tried very intently, and there was never a punishment for adultery because it had to be not only an eyewitness, it had to be several eyewitnesses, who could collaborate the story independently because they took capital punishment so seriously. There's several levels of humiliation that they're going to face because in the Hebrew culture, they couldn't bring the woman to punishment if they didn't bring the man to punishment. They couldn't bring the man to punishment because more than likely it was one of them who had set this up. It was probably one of them or someone that they knew who had enticed this woman or got in this position because they didn't care about her. Their full intent was to trap Jesus into something that he would say. Well, they didn't do it. And and I want to tell you, at at any time, be careful when you try to humiliate Jesus because you're going to look foolish. There's no way around it. So they have done several things in this that are critically wrong, both in in Hebrew law and in Roman law. They were in violation of almost every, in every possible way, and Jesus knew it. He knew certainly what this was all about. He knew what they had done, and it set him up to be able to respond the way that he did. So we go to verse 7. He stooped down, and I've heard a lot of things about what he wrote. What was he writing on the ground? And he acted like he didn't hear them. Now we know that he did. We know that he heard them. My conjecture, based on the way that they leave, is that he was writing the sin against those who had brought the accusation in order because they leave in order. There was no reason for the eldest to leave first. Whatever he was writing, I believe, prompted them to leave the way that they did. So verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself. And he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, Let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So now they're hung in this moment. Because it says it kind of strangely. Let him first cast a stone at her. When you read that it actually does say let him throw the first stone at her. The one who brought the accusation. This is part of the seriousness of it. Because if you're going to accuse somebody. If you're going to bring some kind of an accusation against somebody, you've also got to be prepared in that, in that accusation to carry out the punishment yourself. Can you imagine in our culture even, for someone to sentence someone to the death penalty, if they had to be the one in the room giving the injection or starting the voltage? Can you imagine how often that would be done if 
the one who was bringing the accusation, not even the jury, but the one who was making the accusation, had to carry out the punishment. I mean, this would be a strange new mental and emotional process, but that was what was supposed to happen. So Jesus is basically saying, which one of you caught her? Which one of you saw her? Which one of you hasn't brought sin into this because you're doing what you're in violation to your own Hebrew law because you didn't catch her? And if you did catch her, come throw the stone. It's up to you. And they were stuck because they came there to humiliate Jesus. And now what were they stuck with? Humiliation themselves. Not being able to carry out their own verdict after having made the accusation that they made. I don't want to go too far with this, and I don't want to stretch this past what's reasonable and understandable. But the spirit of religion will always do it. The spirit of religion will always be quick with the word, quick with the accusation, quick with the issue, and rarely will a spirit of religion bring relief, success, mercy, kindness, grace, or anything else. Because in the spirit of religion, being right is greater than being righteous. And most people I know who carry that spirit of religion desperately need to be right. Because if I'm not right, then, I, then everything I believe begins to come apart. So they defend being right greater than being righteous. So he goes on, and this is the best part. Verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So convicted by their own conscience. In 59 years, I have seen some terrible things done at the hands of Christian people. We expect it of the world, but I've seen some pretty tough stuff done by the hands of Christians and in the name of God. And I wonder... These men who came and made this accusation, when confronted by Jesus, felt the conviction because of their own conscience and turned and walked away. What does it say about a person who can stand in judgment, harshly criticizing or condemning someone in the name of God and feeling nothing? And that's what I find most of the time, feeling nothing. At least these men, being confronted with that truth, walked away. Now, I don't know how many people were left, but it does say that Jesus and this woman are now standing in the midst of whoever's left. There is some crowd there. They're not standing there alone. There's some small crowd, the disciples probably, and a few others that were still standing there after the Pharisees had left because it says that he'd come into the temple to teach, so there were still people around. When Jesus had lifted up and saw none but the woman, so Jesus was focused on her. What shifted between the spirit of religion and the spirit of God? She went from the least important to what? The most important. That Jesus saw no one but her. Certainly there were people around, but Jesus did what's so hard for us to do. He was honed in on one woman. One situation. This is pure conjecture. I don't ask you to believe it. But I believe part of what happened early in this story was that he felt so badly for this woman 
based on what those men had just done. The compassion that I know is his identity, the compassion that he would feel, the understanding and the empathy, the sympathy that Jesus would have immediately for this woman who had been so mistreated by the hands of this mob that had brought her. I believe some of what we read early here is very much Jesus' heart broken because of what they had done to her. Jesus never says, it's okay what you're doing, go back to it. He never gives any mental or emotional support of her lifestyle, and we can't go there. But this we can recognize in contrast between the way she was just treated by those who held themselves in high regard before God as religious leaders and this one whose name was Jesus. One of them got it right. One of them was focused on her. And the most amazing thing in this story, even for us, we have to walk away with this. Because normally when somebody comes to us, that we want to ask them, well, tell me about what happened. You know, you don't have to tell me the details, but I need to, I need to understand what happened. Jesus never asked her anything. For him to say to her what he needed to say to her did not require her to regurgitate her story whatsoever. We need to be real careful in, in understanding what Jesus did because he didn't carry her, he didn't mentally and emotionally make her walk through the awfulness of her life for her to come to this point where she received the grace that she did. And we're very tempted to have someone tell us their story so that we'll know how to appropriately respond. And Jesus required nothing because he knew her story because the Father would reveal it. In deliverance here, I talk to people, I tell them, I will ask you only the questions that the Holy Spirit gives me because I have no desire to take a stick and poke it through your life because it hurts. God will, by his questions, create a laser straight into your story that will be the least painful in the distance that we can possibly cover. He wants to cover it as quickly as possible. He lifts himself up and saw none but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? The great contrast here now in this part of the story where Jesus is focused on her. He could have said to her, and perfectly right in his statement, You know, you really ought to be ashamed of yourself. Look at what you're doing to your body. Look at what you're doing to your reputation. Look at how you're hurting your family. The one person on the face of the earth who had lived a life that would set him up to where he could have actually said it to her. The one person who could have legitimately brought out all of those things about her and brought shame on her life refused to do it. I had someone in my office this past week And the statement that came out of his mouth was, I am so ashamed. And I I told him, I said, I will tell you, if you feel ashamed, it is not coming from God. The first Peter says, we're partakers of a divine nature. I got it from my father. But he's a whole lot better at it than I am. So imagine standing there feeling ashamed. And I'm saying, I'm saying, then you're listening to somebody else because he, your father's not saying that. Your father's standing here saying, I understand and I love you. And I love you so much that what you have just done, I've already covered. It's already been paid for. And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the strength I placed in you and the goodness that I see in you and the love and the compassion. I said, if you're feeling that shame, it is not coming from your father. There's another voice and he's busy bringing shame on you. You have done nothing that should even bring you to that thought. And it was amazing because he believed me told someone this morning, and y'all may not believe this, 
probably don't. But very strangely in my ministry, I'm now counseling with more men than women. First time this has happened in six and a half years, I'm counseling with more men than women. And men are just hard to deal with. Amen. Yeah, that's right. There's a whole lot of folks here who are willing to confess that. Women believe you and sometimes men don't. It's a whole new world. I've had to shift gears in dealing with men because it's actually a lot of fun, but it's sure different. The difference I talk about all the time, I'm getting to live it. I don't know how y'all put up with us. Man, it's just really interesting to deal with men. And by far the majority of it, this is part of the oddity, is most of this is coming from men that I'm just meeting for the first time. They don't live here. Someone has sent them and I meet with them. And it's, so it's, they've never been taught this stuff. Everything's new. And it's like you're introducing them to something so foreign when you're trying to talk to them. And, you know, some of them will get it pretty quick. And the others are looking at you kind of cross-eyed saying, I have no idea what you just told me. So we go very slowly. It has been an absolute blessing to be able to have these conversations with these men. It's just unusual what God does and how he does it. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? Now, Jesus was approaching this both from grace and also from the law. Without someone accusing you, there's nothing, you you leave. I mean, there's no one here, there's no one to carry out the punishment. So she knew well, too, what was actually going on. No man condemns you. Boy, what an opportune time for Jesus to have done what we would often do and say, do you realize how bad you're hurting yourself? Do you realize how damaging you are to yourself? And it just doesn't come. It doesn't come out of his mouth. She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn you. What would she have expected from Jesus that she had always gotten from everybody else? She expected judgment. She expected condemnation. Why would Jesus be any different? She had just felt the wrath of all these men who had brought her and made these accusations. And I'm sure that wasn't the first time that she had found herself in a position where she was looked down upon and judged. And here in this moment, something happened that we need to pay extreme, extreme attention to. Because if he had shown any judgment of her, if he had judged her in any way, what would the next phrase have meant when he said, go and sin no more? What made go and sin no more have power? Because it was preceded with grace. Grace makes the instruction and correction possible. Instruction and correction will never be possible if it's preceded by judgment. We live this all the time. And unfortunately, most of the time, when we go to someone to try to even help them or to even give them encouragement, we do it because we have made a judgment that says they need it. So judgment is preceding instruction and encouragement And rarely will it hit the target. But you proceed with grace. I don't say it to do anything but but to establish one thing. Absent the grace of God. Absent what he has done for me and him living in me. I know me and I know what that picture looks like. I know who I would be without him. I know who I struggle to be even now. The things I continue to struggle with and and, and do struggle with. That if I didn't have the power and the grace of God, those things would dominate and control those things that I struggle with now. And God is in this passage saying, if you're going to instruct, if you're going to encourage, 
If you're going to radically be able to speak something into somebody else's life and them listen to you, it must be preceded by grace. If you're going to talk to someone and begin with judgment and try to instruct them, the only reason that they would listen to you is because they're equally judgmental as you are. But when you're trying to help someone minister to someone, if they sense in you that there's a judgment or you're putting them down or trying to put them in their place, their ears will be shut and they will not hear a thing that you said. Jesus could have perfectly said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself and go and sin no more would have meant nothing because she would have received from Jesus exactly what she received from everybody else. I wonder how many times in her life she had been told you ought to be ashamed. And the one person who could actually say it to her didn't. I wish I, you could tell tonight, even in this group, how much shame a group this size actually carries. My suspicion is that it would be a bunch. Some hidden something in our life that we don't want anybody to know about. Something in our past that we have worked desperately for no one to know. Our testimonies that we don't really want to share because we don't want to tell the depth of where we've been. Because we carry this element of shame, it's just easier for no one to know. A man with a withered hand is before Jesus, and if my left hand was withered and deformed, and I was standing before Jesus and he said, stick out your hand, which one do you think you'd stick out if you didn't know who he was? you stick out the good one. Why? Because we're ashamed of the broken one. And Jesus said, your withered hand, hold out your withered hand. Because what we can do, because he lives in us, is we can take the withered hand and make sure they feel no shame. Shame is not of God. Conviction is. Shame is not. If you feel it, it's not from him. If he is willing to die to free us of our sin, rise again to free us from death, send the Holy Spirit to free us from self-effort, I think we ought to be able to walk away and say his message is freedom. If we're carrying the bondage of shame... It's not coming from him. He died to stop it, to set us free so he didn't have to feel ashamed. Even Paul said, whatever infirmity he had, I prayed three times that God would take it. He wouldn't. So now I glory in what God says is necessary in my life. Whatever it was, he certainly could have been ashamed of it. But Paul said, I will not be ashamed of it. As a matter of fact, it's in that weakness that he becomes strong. And I will learn to glory in that weakness whole different perspective. And we see it played out here as beautifully as it can ever be told. Because what Jesus didn't say and what he did say, woman, I don't condemn you. The world's already done that. You don't need more condemnation. You need a savior. You need somebody who can take this story and turn it upside down. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story because it speaks of your heart. It speaks of what you saw in this matter was important, and it was her. And I pray, Lord, that we would always know that it's the person that's more, the most important. Not our schedule, not our busyness, it's always the person. And I pray, Lord, we would pay attention to it, that we'd listen, and that we would be found to be as faithful and filled with grace as you were in this moment, as you love this woman into the kingdom. And I know, Lord, that her story is an amazing story, because she did what you said. She had a desire to go and sin no more. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of this word and the impact it makes on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.